From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. He was 17 before he'd read a novel cover to cover. Now New York Times bestselling author Jason Reynolds hopes to make reading a little cooler for kids inspired by hip-hop and real-world issues. His books connect to the complexities of young adult lives, and he's found critical acclaim for his work, winning an NAACP Award for Outstanding Literary Work. He was also a National Book Award finalist for his novel, Ghost. Jason Reynolds is on tour for his newest book, Look Both Ways, A Tale Told in Ten Blocks. He's going to be speaking about it tomorrow night at Holy Trinity Episcopal Parish in Decatur for the Little Shop of Stories, sponsoring the event. We caught up with Reynolds during his last book tour, and I asked him about that book that first inspired him at age 17. The first book was uh, was Black Boy by Richard Wright. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where a teacher's kind of like, hey, read the first five pages, and if you don't like it, you can close it up. Uh, of course, on the second page of the book, the main character burns his mother's house down. He sets the curtains on fire and 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 basically burns the house down. And for so a you had person, you. <laughs> exactly. That was it, right? It's like, oh, this is amazing. I'm all in, you know. So I also read that you were reading poetry when you were a kid. Poetry? I loved poetry. I thought. I thought. Um, but before poetry, it was it was rap lyrics. I would read the the liner notes of of cassette tapes of my favorite rappers, you know, Queen Latifah and Tupac and Slick Rick and all these these genius, these teenage geniuses, you know. And I'm reading their rap lyrics, and I'm realizing that there's a direct correlation between what they're doing and the poetry that we're learning in school. That this is poetry too, and that was sort of the entree into um, the world of poetry. But I loved it. I loved it. Nikki Giovanni and Langston Hughes and all of the sort of poets of um, of the black tradition. So were your friends reading poetry too? No. <laughs> Would you tell them that you were? Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. I didn't, you know, I, I was fortunate to grow up around uh, a bunch of guys that I, that I, I love dearly and that kind of respected whatever it is we all chose to do. It's kind of, we're all very different. Um, so they were okay, but they didn't understand it, that's for sure. But they were like, all right, Jay's, Jay's doing whatever Jay does, you know. Well, you grew up in D.C. in the 1980s. This is a time of big social changes, big hair, and big social problems. What was it like for you? I mean, you know, I think it's one of those things where you, when you're a kid, you don't always understand everything, right? If you go to your grandma's house in, in northeast D.C. and your cousins are there, you don't know why people are acting the way they're they're acting until you're a little bit older. But then you realize that there was, you know, you have to deal with the crack epidemic or my next door neighbor who um, unfortunately died of HIV or my friend's uncle who died of, who died of AIDS. Um, we were around it all the time. And then you also had rap music, right? It was everywhere. This this new music that all of us had grabbed the hold of, uh, it was a big deal. Um, but these are the things that were happening. And these are the things I would have loved to have seen in books just mm. because they they were familiar. You know? Well, right. And you were hearing these things reflected in hip hop, maybe, but not necessarily in books. No, not in books. I mean, when you if you were raised in the 1980s and in the early 1990s, all of the books that you were reading were pretty much based in the 1970s and the 1960s. Um, what would have been helpful is if we had hyper contemporary work, works that were uh, that, that, that not just reflected our realities, but also that were that was written with our um with our linguistic texture, right? I needed to hear my voice. Uh, I needed to hear the details of my language on the, on, uh, in the stories, and that wasn't a thing at the time. So you didn't have those books at that time. Who would you say is your target audience now? My target audience, uh, the, you know, if you are eight years old 
all the way up to 25, you're my target audience. But also anybody, I, you know, I try not to limit it. I think we all could use um, a good story. I think we all could use uh, a conduit to empathy and a conduit to understanding. And that doesn't have an age limit on it. But for young people, I want them to know that they're valuable. And so in order to do that, I try to create works that reflect their realities as they are living them. Um, so that if you feel alone in the space in which you reside, you know you need not feel alone because these books can serve as reminders that it's not just you. Well, if you're looking at a you know, classical YA audience, you've got the sort of tweens and, as you said, up to 25, but a lot of them focused on middle school kids. This is a time of life that a lot of us want to forget. Why did you decide you wanted to write for that audience? I think, I think that those young people are at the fork in the road. I think they are at sort of this interesting precipice and what happens to them in seventh and eighth grade, sixth, seventh and eighth grade could affect their lives forever. It doesn't have to, right? They don't have to necessarily cling to whatever story is given to them at, at 12 years old, but it does matter um, that at that age, as they start to form opinions about the world around them, that there is something there to remind them that their opinions are valid, mm-hmm. right? And that their experiences are valid and valuable and that they're not half formed things, right? They are whole people, just young, but they're whole people moving through the world at 11 years old, and we have to honor that. Yeah, and the, uh, what I see in them is this kind of awareness of self or dawning awareness of self and trying to balance that with the rest of the world. And something that I see running through your books, expectations, expectations that parents have, that communities have, either low or high. I'm thinking especially of Sonny, because I just read that. Uh, his dad wants him to be a marathon runner. He wants to be a dancer. How does he navigate that? He's he's his his navigation through it is complicated because this is his father. And young people feel this way all the time, that there are things that they that they perhaps want to do that their parents don't necessarily see as viable, right? Or, or see, um, as real or as authentic or as, as safe. Um, uh, and also we have to remember that adults, we have our own baggage and we bring that baggage to every space that we step into, even when it comes to the raising and the rendering of our children, right? Like when we are raising our kids, that doesn't mean that we shirk off our own baggage before we begin that process. And so what you see in Sonny is his father uh, projecting and his father not being able to deal with his own pain. And so Sonny has to bear that weight until Sonny decides not to. And he just, he just says to himself, look, this is what I want to do. And I have to make this decision for me. Um, I can't live for my parents anymore. And I, and I, and I, and I know that that's really hard in real life, but that's the reason why I put it in a book so that young people know that at some point you may have to make that decision. You're listening to my earlier conversation with author Jason Reynolds. He'll be at Atlanta's Holy Trinity Episcopal Parish in Decatur tomorrow night. Well, Sonny is also the child of privilege. So this bucks against, you know, this kind of idea of, uh, you know, being raised in an underserved community as an African-American young boy. Why did you bring that in? Why was that important to you in this book? Because I think that there's, there's always such, our experiences have been whittled down to a sliver when really we aren't monolithic people. We are polylithic. We are polylithic people um, with multiple uh, slivers of culture. And all of us, you know, it, it, we all share certain things, but we also, um, there are a lot of things that we don't share. And, and Sunny is real, right? The reality is there are a lot of 
black kids who are wealthy, black kids who are privileged and who are resourced, that's a reality. And we never get to hear that story. Does that mean that their lives are better? Perhaps in certain ways their lives are made easier. But there are other issues that come into play that that still affect them and that still sort of um, have to be worked through. The other thing is that I think that the black child has to be able to be all the things. When we talk about freedom and liberty and all these things that we sort of tout all the time in our country, what we don't always talk about is how the, the what freedom actually is, is the ability to be whatever it is that I want to be, even if that means not being the coolest kid in school. The black kid is always seen as either the toughest kid or the coolest kid. Hmm. The truth is, is that black kids can be weirdos, too. They can be counterculture and misfits, too. A lot of YA books, you get, you know, not that range, but you get the post-apocalyptic kind of fantasy book. You know, I'm thinking of The Hunger Games as yeah. stamping it. Do, do you ever get tempted to try that route? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, it, it, it's curious. I'm, I'm curious about it, but I, um, one, I don't know if I, my, my, my colleagues who do that, I have utmost respect for them. There's a certain level of, of imagination one must have that I'm not sure that I have yet. And two, I, I don't know if I can suspend reality in that way. I think that the world we live in is um, is magical enough. I, I just think we have to pay attention to it in a different way. You talked about hip-hop as one of those pillars, one of your inspirations. And how do you translate that into books, into reading? I think a few ways. Number one is language. I think that the beauty of being raised at the uh, the boon of the hip-hop era, the boon of hip-hop culture, is that when hip-hop evolved, it, it, it over time became, um, it basically just became youth culture around the world, which started out as, as, as a segment of black culture, specifically urban black culture, uh, grew up and became worldwide culture of all young people on earth. And so the beauty of that is that language is the language I naturally speak. So I have an in. It's like a, it's like having a golden ticket into into young people's sort of psyches. Uh, and so the first thing is language. I try to be honest with language and fool around and play around and be playful and loose with language on the page because that's the way that we speak. We're, we're not robots. We're not, you know, I don't speak as a poet. I speak as a person. <laughs> and I think I want to put that on the page. The second thing is rhythm. Those books, if you read them aloud, they're written with a certain kind a rhythm, and I don't know, um, and it just comes naturally to me because that's the way I was introduced to literature was through rhythm, was through music. Um, by the way, that's how we all are introduced to literature. I mean, right. we learn the, the alphabet, da 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 da, with the alphabet song, right? We we all learn everything we learn about literature or about language or about phonics. We learn through song, we learn through rhythm, we learn through nursery rhyme and all these other things. So it's natural. Um, for me to take what I learned from hip hop and to transfer that into the page. Well, rhythm, of course, is the language of poetry. And you, your most recent book, uh, For Everyone, is written as a poem. And after, you know, being recognized with huge awards, your most recent book, For Everyone, is about the pain of not hitting it out of the park. <laughs> it's, it's a real departure. What has what the response been from readers used to your YA fiction? It's it's surprisingly it's been it's been overwhelming. I um I wrote for everyone when I was twenty four, and when I was quitting and felt defeated and um, wasn't certain that there was space for me in the literary world. And this was sort of my way of licking my wounds. This was the only way I knew how to communicate to myself. This this medium, this art form that I studied and sort of 
cleaved to for 20 years at that point, um, I needed more than ever because I felt defeated. And so I started writing for everyone. It took three years. And over the course of that three years, it, uh, it went from a licking of the wounds to more of um, a better understanding of what the process is and what the journey is. Um, but instead of writing a, a journey is the destination book, it's more about saying, look, I don't have any answers because I don't know. I have the same problems that you have. Um, I don't know how to make this thing happen. I don't know how to find success. I wish I could one plus one it for you. But the truth is, is that I am not an expert on life. Um, what I do know is that you aren't alone. What I do know is how it feels to want something, uh, to want something better than breathing. I know, I know what that feels like. Uh, and that's sort of where for everyone came from. It's kind of weird to read it and to see it out in the world because I wrote it 10 years ago mm-hmm. and we didn't, and we didn't edit it. We just kind of left it as is as my 24 year old voice and put that into the world. And so it's kind of cool that people like it, but it's kind of cringy for me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so Jason, I mean, if you had a magic wand, what would you change about how literature is taught in schools today? I don't believe, and this is, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I haven't, so forgive me, I haven't quite fleshed it all out, but I, I do want to sort of pose this. I don't, if, if language is a living thing, right, which we all can agree on, language is living, it is changing, and it is evolving, just as human beings are living, changing, and evolving, then we should not be reading the same books um, after a certain amount of time. There needs to be, like, waves have to go in and out. I don't want, like, as much as I love Sunny and all of the books that I've been able to write, if 40 years from now they're being taught in schools, I failed. Hmm. I failed, right? The truth is, is that I don't, I, 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 the idea of timelessness is interesting because I want to write something that's really timely, really now, like right now. And I want it to work to affect change right now. And if, and if that means that I sacrifice the timelessness of that book, I'm actually pretty, I'm okay with that. New York Times bestselling author Jason Reynolds. His new book is called Look Both Ways, A Tale Told in Ten Blocks. You can hear him talk about it tomorrow night at Holy Trinity Episcopal Parish in Decatur. The event is sponsored by Little Shop of Stories.